a great and high honor it is to be gathered together in the presence of the Lord with all of you this evening. Amen. What a privilege we have entering into the presence of God, receiving of Him whatever it is we have need of tonight. Praise God. Some may take that for granted, but I don't. I can't. I can't allow that to happen, and neither can you. The idea that the Creator of the universe has made Himself available to me in my time of need, I can't, I can't just blow that off. That's huge. That's unfathomable. Amen. And we have that access anytime we need it, anytime we desire it. Praise God. Let's all stand. I want us to simply pray for our service this evening, that God's will would be accomplished, His words would go forth, ministry would take place. Amen. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. We are so thankful to be gathered together in Your presence this evening. We acknowledge You as Lord and God, Savior, Redeemer, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We acknowledge You, Thou Most High God, as the only true, wise, living God, that You possess all power, all authority. You possess all knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Help us this evening, I pray. Minister to every need represented in this congregation. Minister to every need represented by those who are joining us online tonight. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that Your will would be accomplished here. Let Your name be glorified in our midst this evening. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Before we start, uh, I don't know if anyone's following the elections. We've had record turnouts all over the country. Uh, I don't know if they went your way or they didn't go your way, but whatever way they went, please understand this. That's not where our salvation lies. That is not our hope. Uh, if it goes exactly my way, in two more years it could go the exact opposite way. Uh, so, let's not... We need, to, we need to vote. I encourage all of us to vote. Every, every opportunity we get, that's our right. It's our privilege as citizens of the United States. And I think we need to do that. But, having said that, let's not put too much stock into who is elected, who is making the laws, who is in charge at the moment. God is in charge forevermore. And I know that's cliche probably in every election period, but it's true. It's so easy for us to get focused on these things and distracted by these things. And in fact, uh, the idea of distraction, uh, it doesn't take an election for people to get distracted. That can happen at any moment, any time, any day. 
Uh, things can happen in the family. Things can happen at school or at work. Things can happen in our government or in our society that we start focusing on, we start getting obsessive over. And uh, it's, it's easy to do that, especially when you're concerned about these things. And we ought to be concerned, but not to the point where we become fearful or we become discouraged about it. Uh, our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And it needs to stay there. It needs to stay there. Period. If we have a need, God can and will meet that need for us. Amen. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be discouraged, depressed, upset, jealous, envious, uh, bitter, whatever it might be. We don't have to be despondent. We don't have to be anything like that. We can have joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's available to every child of God full time. It's independent of circumstance. Independent of situation. We can have peace that passes all understanding. That's available to every child of God, no matter what. No matter what we're experiencing, no matter what we're going through. That's ours. That's the free gift of God. Amen. Alright. Uh, our lesson tonight, as promised, we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite subject, Radiometric and radiocarbon dating. Woohoo! Calm down. We got a lot to get through. All right. <laughs> now, you might ask, why radio, radiometric and radiocarbon dating? This isn't geology class. This isn't physics class. This is Wednesday Bible study. I get it. I understand. The fact of the matter is that there is an intense battle waged, raging, in the world today. One of the fronts of that battle, I mean, we could look at, you know, we can look at abortion, we can look at homosexuality and in the breakdown of the marriage unit, we could look at uh, whatever laws you want to look at, whatever social, uh, cultural norms are coming to pass. We can look at any one of those and focus on that, and maybe rightly so. But at the end of the day, those arise from some other cause, okay? Um, sometimes when we focus on these things, it's, it's kind of like trying to put a Band-Aid on cancer. And I'm not saying we shouldn't resist these things. We shouldn't fight against these things. We need to. We need to pray against abortion and... and and the uh, ideology that lies behind that. Okay? Uh, you know, when I start showing symptoms of something, uh, a lot of times we like to treat the symptoms. But the disease, whatever caused the symptoms, it's still in there. It's still affecting me. Wouldn't we rather treat, this, treat the, the disease? The symptoms will go away by itself when the disease is gone. So what's the disease of all of these things? Well, at the end of the day, all of these things stem from a worldview, a philosophy, humanism, which fights against Christianity. 
It does. And we can focus on all of those things, or we can get to the root of the problem. And that's what I'm wanting to do here with this study, is get to the root of the issue. When we treat humanism, when we find a way to uh, destroy the tenets of humanism and move forward the tenets, the, the, uh, the ideas or the, the philosophies, the, the judgments, if you will, of God in Christianity, all of that other stuff goes away. When someone converts from atheism to Christianity, biblical Christianity, as we see in the Scriptures, we don't have to worry about them uh, going to get an abortion. We don't have to worry about them uh, falling into uh, lesbianism or homosexuality. Because they see in the Word of God. They have a relationship with God and they're desiring to serve and please Him. So there's this battle going on between ideologies, between philosophies, between worldviews, however you want to look at it or coin it. That's the battle. And that portion of the battle we're going to focus on tonight is this idea of deep time. Deep time. There's an intense battle being waged between old earth orthodoxy and young earth creationists. Why is that? Why this fixation on millions and billions of years? What difference does it make on either side? What difference does it make? I, I think I've already explained what difference it makes on our side, the creationist side. But on their side, they need billions of years for their worldview to have any sense of legitimacy at all. If they don't have billions of years then they just don't have enough time for evolution to work. For all of this to come into existence all by itself. Natural processes. So they need billions of years. Without these vast ages, the only viable option remaining is someone created it. Those are the only two options available. It made itself or someone else made it. And they cannot abide someone else making it. Why not? Well, aren't, aren't we're, we're talking about scientists, right? These impartial seekers of truth in white lab coats. They just come to every situation with a blank slate. They just look at the evidence as it's presented. And they, they look at all the facts and they determine the best course of action, right? Absolutely not. No human being operates like that. It sounds good on paper. It sounds nice, kind of like communism. Sounds great on paper. Never works in the real world, though. People don't approach situations like that. Rather, what everybody does is they approach the situation already committed to a philosophy or a worldview. And they're going to interpret the evidence or the data based on what they are already committed to. That's how everyone works. You can try to be as open-minded as you want 
And there are, there are things that you can do to, to minimize that if that's what you're after. But at the end of the day, folks, we all have pre-commitments. We all have presuppositions that we hold to be true. Whether we realize it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, they're there. And they affect the way we think about things. They affect the way we see reality. Everybody operates like that. The only difference is Christians are honest and open about it. I approach Scripture pre-committed to its authority. I don't need some external third party to, to be able to demonstrate to me that the Bible is infallible. That the Bible is the Word of God. I don't, I don't need anyone to demonstrate that to me. I'm already committed to that idea. But I'm being open about it. I'm being honest about that. They are not. Now, either they don't know that's how they're operating, or they're lying to us. Almost every case, they don't know. They're, they don't know that that's the case. Most people really do believe that they are objective. People are not objective to varying degrees, to be fair. So that's how people approach situations. Second Peter 3 and 5 says this, I did not give our sound person anything, and in fact, I needed to create a handout on this because there's a lot of information. Uh, I did not do that either. I've been out of town. Uh, I will have that by next Wednesday. Amen for your reading enjoyment. All right, so Second uh, Peter 3 and 5 says, For this they willingly are ignorant of. They're willingly ignorant. In other words, they know what the truth is in their heart of hearts. They know what the truth is. That there is a God. And it, He did speak everything into existence. They know that to be true. But they are willingly ignorant. They have decided in their hearts that they are going to pursue other ideas. They have committed in their heart of hearts to other presuppositions, to other world views. They are going to reject the truth of Scripture and subscribe to another truth. That's what this verse is saying. <clears throat> what are they willingly ignorant of? That by the Word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. The idea that God is our Creator and that He created all things. That He owns all things. They will not acknowledge that truth. They are pre-committed. They are already committed to an idea, to a worldview. Alright, so this idea of billions of years or as... A lot of people like to refer to it as deep time. We're going to start our discussion on this with a man named Charles Lyell. Charles Lyell was a Scottish geologist. Uh, geologist. He authored a book called Principles of Geology, which presented to a wide public audience the idea that the earth was shaped by the same natural processes still in operation today, operating at similar intensities. Now, before this, the prevailing idea was the idea of catastrophism. And I know I've used these words before. 
or the idea that sometime in the relative recent past, there was this great big catastrophe that took place, and it reshaped the world very quickly. So those are the two ideas. Charles Lyle comes along and says, no, that's not how it happened at all. It actually happened very slowly over millions of years. Lyle derived his ideas on uniformitarianism from such thinkers as David Hume. David Hume was a Scottish Enlightenment philosopher who said this, All inferences from experience suppose that the future will resemble the past. Now I'm going, to, I'm going to take a quick detour here and let us know how important ideas are in the world. Ideas are very, very powerful things. They are very powerful uh, tools in which to shape not only an individual's life, not only a nation's life, but the entire world. There is nothing more powerful other than God than a good idea. They're, they have vast power to change minds, to shape lives. So when an idea comes along, especially a good sounding idea, like, well, we don't need God to explain the universe. We can explain it with natural processes, physical laws, natural laws. A lot of people pick up on that. Well, that sounds fascinating. I picked up on it. I was born and raised Lutheran, but I was deep into this stuff. Because it fascinates me. And not having heard anything different... Not seeing how it relates to Scripture in any way. I just went with it. And a lot of people do that. Ignorantly. Because that's all they've heard. And the parts that they do hear sound very persuasive. Very convincing. They do a very good job putting this together. But if you dig down at all, it begins to fall apart. It begins to fall apart. <clears throat> so when you're presented with an idea, please make sure that you run it by Scripture first before anything else. It might sound like a fantastic idea. Just a awesome. Why haven't we been doing it this way from the start? But it's got it's to conform to Scripture. If it can contradict Scripture at any point, then it's not a good idea at all. James Hutton is another person that contributed to Charles Lyell's way of thinking. He was a Scottish geologist. Uh, before him, he's often referred to as the father of modern geology. He said this in 1788, quote, From what has actually been, we have data for concluding with regard to that which is to happen thereafter. In other words, as he rephrased, the present is the key to the past. We observe Things that go on in the present, processes. Today we're going to be talking about uh, half-lives and radioactive decay and big-sounding words like that. Please don't let them scare you off. This is a very easy concept. 
Okay? It's a very simple concept. You don't need to know all, the, all of the terms and, and stuff like that. Uh, just understand the concept. And that's easy peasy. This book, Principles of Geology, was read by a young man by the name of Charles Darwin on his voyage aboard the HMS Beagle. Later on, he admitted that this book had a profound effect on his ideas on evolution. A profound effect. A profound influence. Lyle saw himself as, quote, the spiritual savior of geology, freeing the science from the old dispensation of Moses, unquote. Now that should scare some people. That gives me goosebumps reading that. Freeing the science from the old dispensation of Moses. In other words, the creation account. We don't have to subscribe to the creation account anymore. We can free ourselves from that superstition and discover the truth. Now boy, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I want the truth. I don't want to be a superstitious guy. Paradoxically, Lyle was a deeply religious man with a very strong belief in the special status of human reason. Consequently, he had great difficulty reconciling his beliefs with the idea of natural selection as promoted by Darwin. Indeed, he did reject the, the idea of evolution in his first nine editions of the book Principles of Geology. But he would give a half-hearted endorsement to the idea in the tenth and following editions. He even encouraged Darwin to publish his papers on the topic and was eventually able to reconcile the, uh, the cognitive dissonance or the, uh, the contradictions between his belief system and evolution by stating this. It would be as much a remarkable manifestation of creative power to guide evolution as it would be to create each species separately. So in other words, it would be equally miraculous as if that's what's at stake here. That's not what's at stake here. But nonetheless, it would be an equal uh, manifestation of God's power to guide the evolutionary process as it would be to speak everything into existence as we read in Genesis. And that that satisfied him. Because current processes are moving at an incredibly slow rate today, and because Lyle rejects the idea of catastrophic event in the recent past, he concludes that the earth must be incredibly old. In fact, Lyle favored an infinite age of the earth. There were... There was no evidence for an infinite age. There was all kinds of evidence for a finite age of the earth. Uh, they just debate what that age is. Currently, it's at 4.6 plus or minus a few million billion years old. Now, looking at what we've just seen, can we determine some of Mr. Charles Lyle's presuppositions? From what he has read, from what he has, has printed, from what he has said,
Can we begin to understand how this individual thinks about reality? How should he live his life? What are his ideas of right and wrong? What are his presuppositions? Does he adhere to the absolute authority of Scripture? Most certainly not, right? He wants to free us from that. So he does not subscribe to the authority of Scripture. What authority does he subscribe to? Maybe his own? Science? Naturalism? Yeah, we can start to see a little bit. And the reason these questions are important is because if I were going to speak with Mr. Charles Lyle about the Bible, about the authority of Scripture, I'd want to know what he thought about things. What are his presuppositions? Because if I don't know what his presuppositions are, I'm going to speak right over his head. He's going to speak right over my head. And nothing is going to be accomplished. We're just going to end up disagreeing. How dumb can he be? How dumb can he be? Doesn't he see this? And that's what both sides are going to say. No. Neither side can see what you're saying because of presuppositions. It's a specific color glasses that people wear. And that's the only color people can see out in the world. I'm trying to show someone blue and all they can see is red. No, they can't see it. And he's trying to show me red and all I can see is blue. I can't see what he's trying to tell me. So I have to address his presuppositions. And to do that, I need to know what they are. At least have an idea. I know this individual does not adhere to Scripture. He does science. He's a scientist. Presumably, I would say a humanist or an empiricist. Don't worry about that. He believes in what he can taste and feel and see and touch. He's going to pursue the evidence. Alright. So, that's the reason we're going to be talking about this tonight. Is because this is the scientific evidence that is always presented to us to demonstrate to us unequivocally that the earth is indeed billions of years old. And I'm going to demonstrate to you tonight that is unequivocally false. They don't have a scientific leg to stand on. So the next time someone says, well, these were tested and it's been demonstrated that it's millions, billions of years old. It's been carbon dated. And it's been shown to be 75,000, 100,000 years old. Lord willing, I'm going to demonstrate to you tonight that these, these scientific methods are based on several assumptions that are unprovable, undemonstrable, and unreasonable. All right. Radioactivity.
Everyone here has heard of the atom, right? Protons, neutrons, electrons. Okay. The atom consists of a small positively charged nucleus. It's made up of positively charged protons, neutrally charged neutrons, and that contains just about all the mass of an atom. It's surrounded way relative distances, way out from the nucleus, by an electron cloud, which has almost none of the mass. It's negatively charged. Any chemical reactions that take place between atoms is between the electrons of, the, of that cloud. Okay, so the nucleus. The nucleus gives us the atomic number, how many protons, and thus how many electrons an atom possesses. Okay. Protons and neutrons we've talked about. Electron cloud we've talked about. All right. So, now that we understand an atom, we can talk about uh, different types of atoms. Now, before I do that, a quick question. We go to the backyard, or better yet, you're a farmer. And you're digging up your yearly crop of rocks. Who here has went out and picked rocks out in the field? It's a good time. It's a great job for an 18-year-old young man. It is. <clears throat> can see to can't see. Go out there and pick me my rocks up. All right, so you pick a rock up. How can you tell how old it is? Can you tell how old it is by its appearance? Or maybe the color of the rock? Will that tell us how old the rock is? <laughs> maybe the rocks are come already labeled. Created in 423 B.C. Is that how we determine the age of rocks? Can we determine the age of rocks by observing them form? I suppose we could. We know it's a brand new rock. How about by the minerals in the rock? Can we determine how old the rock is by the minerals contained in the rock? How about if there's a fossil in the rock? Now can we determine how old the rock is? How about by the chemistry in the rock? Well, chemistry is what people use to determine the age of a rock strata uh, or a rock layer or whatever it is that they're sampling. Now, there are two general types of dating methods, radiometric and radiocarbon, or carbon dating. You've all heard of that. Ronald Reagan used to tell jokes about how they'd have to carbon date him <coughs> because he was so old. <coughs> But uh, as an aside, carbon dating can only be, uh, you can only date something that was once living with the, the radiocarbon dating method, okay? It only works on things that were once living, and we'll explain why later. Uh, everything else, non-living rocks, things like that, that's radiometric dating. Okay, so we use this chemistry. So... Each element that we find on the periodic table is made up of atoms with the same unique number of electrons and protons. Okay, for example, carbon. Carbon is element six because it has six protons in its nucleus. 
Okay? And the reason this atom is a carbon atom is because it has six protons. If we add a proton to the nucleus, it's no longer carbon. Now it's nitrogen. Pretty cool, huh? All you've got to do to transmute lead into gold is add or subtract some protons. Easy peasy. Not quite. Simple in understanding it, but it's not at all easy. <laughs> okay, so carbon-12 is referred to as carbon-12 because it has six protons and six neutrons. Okay, so that's carbon-12. The number of neutrons can vary in an element, and that's where we get isotopes from, different isotopes of an element. Carbon-12 is an isotope. Carbon-13 is a carbon isotope, and carbon-14 is an isotope, okay? Just different number of neutrons. Again, I'm throwing this out there for those that are interested. We're going to get into the concepts in just a little bit. That's all we really need to understand tonight. And we'll apply those concepts later on. But I just want to, I want to explain the process that people use to date rocks. So, there are three different types of carbon isotopes. 12, 13, and 14. Carbon-14 is radioactive or unstable. Okay? Now, we need radiation for this method to work. Okay? Because it's going to go through a process that they refer to as decay. Radioactive decay. Where it decays, it's not technically decay, it's more transforms. It transforms into another element. There are two types of uh, decays, but we won't get into that. The important thing is that the unstable element will decay into a stable isotope, a different element. Okay. So, understanding that. We can now measure the process, measure that rate of decay in the present, and extrapolate that back. Makes sense, right? Just for an easy example, if this radioactive isotope turns into this isotope in a period of one year, okay? I can extrapolate that back based on how much of that isotope is in the rock and determine how long that rock has been around. That's the gist of the, the idea here. That's what we're going to do. So, the decaying radioactive isotopes are called the parent atoms. Okay? The resultant stable isotope atoms are called the daughter atoms. So, parents, unstable, like all kids know, they're radioactive, and they're going to break apart and decay into stable daughter atoms, or children, because the children are always level-headed and, and stable. That's right. Okay. So, minerals, rocks, fossils, they contain some of these radioactive parent atoms and some of these daughter atoms. Okay, 
These are the types of radioactive dating methods that are used today. Carbon nitrogen or carbon dating. Uh, uranium lead. There are two different types of those. Potassium argon, rubidium strontium, samarium neodymium. Okay, again, don't worry about the elements. There are several methods, uh, several different radioactive isotopes that can be used to uh, complete this process. Okay, so what happens is you send a rock sample into the lab, and these labs, these labs are very sophisticated. Millions and millions of dollars went into these labs. Uh, all, through, all throughout this, this uh, message tonight, uh, understand that these, the results that come back are not in question. Okay? The data, the, the, the results that these labs produce are spot on. What we do question is the, the conclusions that they come to based on the, these data. That's what we question. Because the results, the conclusions that are arrived at are based on several assumptions. Okay, now, I talked about an hourglass analogy. Okay, let's say we got this hourglass, right? A big, expensive, cool-looking hourglass. And we know, because we've tested it, that when we tip it over, it takes exactly one hour for the sand to fall from the top all the way down to the bottom. Exactly one hour. So we know that. We know that both the top and the bottom are closed. They're airtight. They're sealed. I can't take any sand out. I can't put any sand in. I can't put water in and get it clogged up. Okay. So, I tip it over and I leave the room. <clears throat> or better yet, I come into the room and I see someone tip the hourglass over. And 25% of the sand is in the bottom. I look at it, kind of eyeball it, about 25%. What can I conclude? Well, about 15 minutes ago, someone tipped it over, right? Someone turned it over. Because I know all of those things. Okay, now, here's another example. Both ends are wide open. I have no idea how long it takes for the sand to go from the top to the bottom. I see 25% of the, the sand is, is down at the bottom. What can I conclude from that? Now, what I, what I can do is I can make some assumptions. I can assume that my kids have left it completely alone. They haven't touched it. They haven't added any sand. <clears throat> they haven't taken any out. They haven't stopped it up. And I can use my vast experience of hourglasses. It's called hourglass for a reason. It probably takes about an hour. Now I can make those assumptions, and based on those assumptions, I can conclude that about 15 minutes ago, someone tipped that thing over. But how accurate would that be? Maybe it's spot on. Maybe it's way off. How could I tell? How would I know? In fact, there is no possible way for me to know. Not for sure. 
I can make those assumptions, but there's no way for me to prove those assumptions. Now, I said this was analogous to radiometric dating. The top, the top sand is the parent isotope. That's the radioactive isotope. The sand falling through the middle, that's the decay process. The sand accumulating at the bottom, that's the daughter isotope. Okay? So basically, the assumptions that are being made are no one added or took away any sand at any point during the process. I'm also making an assumption that it ran through the middle at the same rate the whole time. I'm also making the assumption that all the sand at the bottom came from the top. Those are assumptions that I have to make. And those are the three assumptions that all radiometric dating come baked in. Those three assumptions. And if any of those assumptions are not accurate, then we do not have an accurate age. Okay. So, to sum up, assumption one, all the daughter atoms are derived from the parent atoms. There were none there at the start. So, example, a rock, a magma flow from however long ago comes out of the earth, cools off, crystallizes into rock. Okay? That starts the process. There's no daughter, the assumption is there's no daughter isotope in there, only parent. Any daughter element we find must then come from radioactive decay. This is called inheritance. Okay? If you look at the literature, that's what they're going to refer to it as. Daughter, daughter isotopes were inherited from other, other sources. Assumption number two. No other process has affected the daughter-parent relationship. In other words, no isotopes were added later. Little Johnny didn't come in and add sand to it while I was away. That's referred to in the literature as contamination. You'll see that word used. Assumption three. The decay rate has remained constant the entire life of the rock. None of these assumptions are provable. The past cannot be observed and measured. Okay? And this is the big problem, as an aside, with origin science. Things, most science is good science. Chemistry, we look at chemistry, biochemistry, biology. It's stuff that we can see happen today. We can demonstrate it. Or we can demonstrate that it's not happening. It's false. It's falsifiable. We can show these things scientifically, scientific method. It's alive and well, folks. It works great. And it works great in good science. The problem with this type of science is that none of that is possible. I can believe that there was a Big Bang 15 to 20 billion years ago. I'm free to believe that. 
But there's no way I can demonstrate that. There's no way I can replicate that in a lab. How in the world would you do that? You can't. I can believe that's what happened. I can point to evidence and data that that seems to to point in that direction. But again, worldviews, different colored glasses. I look at the same evidence and say that's great evidence for a creator. So, we have that back and forth. Origin science cannot be observed and measured. I would argue, therefore, that it's not science. It's a religion. Humanism, empiricism, it's a religion. It's a faith-based worldview that cannot be demonstrated. It cannot be proved. It's not scientific, folks. Don't let them just, if I say it enough, maybe they'll start believing it. This is science. It's scientific. Science has proven. Science has demonstrated. Science hasn't done anything. Your conclusions have done that. But that's not based in science. That's based in faith. So they can't be observed. They can't be demonstrated or measured. So these assumptions are not even reasonable. For example, a sample of rock uh, formation from Mount St. Helens. Mount St. Helens erupted in 1986. They took some, some uh, rock samples in from the, those lava flows in 1996. What should the date come back as? Ten years old. It should come back ten years old. Because that's we, we saw it form. We have observable scientific evidence that this is ten years old. So what did it come back as? Using the potassium-argon model, the whole rock, they tested it as a whole, came back as 0.35 million years old. The feldspar in the, the rock sample, 0.34 million years. Amphiboly, I don't know what that is, but they tested that too, 0.9 million years. Pyroxene, 1.7 million years. And a pyroxene concentrate of 2.8 million years. The conclusion was that there was excess inherited argon-40, which is the daughter isotope. It was inherited. There was, uh, there was uh, more there at the start. It didn't all come from the, the parent isotope. Other known rock ages that have been tested, uh, Hualali basalt in Hawaii, this came from uh, 1800 to 1801, that time period. That came back as 1.4 to 1.6 million years old. Mount Etna basalt in Sicily, which was known to have erupted in 122 BC, that came back as 0.25 million years old. Another more recent lava flow in the same area in 1792 came back as 0.35 million years old. Uh, Mount Lassen in California, AD 1915, 0.11 million years old. Sunset Crater basalt in Arizona. Uh, came back at 0.25 to 0.27 million years old. Now this, these tests are not from creation scientists. 
This is straight from the secular literature. And in every single case, it's a very well-documented problem, apparently, with potassium-argon dating in recent lava flows. They will almost certainly give wrong ages due to inheritance of argon-40. There are all kinds of other uh, examples. But, there are recurring issues with this. In fact, in every single instance, 100% of the rock samples that were tested that we do know the age of, in 100% of those tests, it came back way wrong. Way wrong. And in every single case, it was chalked up to inheritance. Now, my, my question then is this. If 100% of the cases that we can demonstrate have been proven false, how much faith can we place in the samples where we don't know the age? In every single case we do know the age, 100%, not 99.9 folks, 100%, every single one of them come back way wrong. Can we have any faith in those when we don't know the age of the rock? I would say no. We can't. It's an unreasonable assumption. The reasonable assumption is there's no way we should go with this. It's wrong. It doesn't work. Okay. Uh, assumption 2 is also consistently violated. That's where stuff is added uh, via contamination. Magma flows coming from the mantle through the crust contaminate or, or uh, change the results of that. Groundwater leaching through the rock, bringing materials with it that settle in the rock. Uh, lends to contamination. Okay, so uh, I won't go through any examples there for time, but uh, that is also consistently violated. Assumption number three, the, the decay rates remain the same. Now this one, actually this one really surprised me. My assumption was that, yeah, the decay rates would remain the same. I don't know what would change that. But there is strong evidence that that is not indeed the case. No one has ever really looked into this in the secular literature because, like me, they just assumed that that was the case. But there are, there are people that have looked into it. Uh, when, you, when you send the same rock sample in and use different testing methods, potassium argon, rubidium strontium, uh, etc., etc., uranium uh, lead, it should come back with the same date. The decay rates should be the same. But they are not the same. They come back with vastly different dates. So there's a problem there. When you test a rock sample using all four radioisotope methods, you find that decay rates are not always constant. Every method gives a different age, which means that different radioisotopes have been ticking or decaying at different rates in the past to give these different ages. There are other lines of evidence that we won't go into. Radio halos, fission tracks, helium leakage uh, that were mentioned in the literature, but the point is, this assumption can be demonstrated to be false. It's false. 
Conclusions. All three assumptions are shown to be unsustainable and unreasonable. Inheritance and contamination in rocks are common when they can be detected, so how can we be sure that they're not also common in rocks of unknown age? Decay rates have been shown not to have been constant, but have been accelerating during some past catastrophic event. Every one of these lines of, of evidence lead back to some catastrophic event in the past, i.e., a flood. Inheritance, contamination, and non-constant decay rates make all the radioactive dating methods totally unreliable. Therefore, the radioactive dating methods cannot provide absolute ages for rocks and meteorites. And therefore, my conclusion is that uh, when they tell me the Earth is billions of years old, they have no idea. They're committed to that idea philosophically. And they'll find any line of reasoning that will help them support that. Now, everybody does that. I'm not necessarily bashing them for doing that. Creationists do it as well. That's how people work. The only difference, though, is our assumptions, our worldview is reasonable. We've demonstrated that in past messages. Okay. Um, i got a few minutes left here, so we'll go quickly into carbon dating. Okay, the carbon cycle. Why can't we only uh, test once living things with carbon dating? Okay, so the carbon cycle. Cosmic radiation enters the Earth's atmosphere and collides with an atom. That creates an energetic neutron. You guys are still with me. You guys are awesome. Hang on, we're almost done. All right. When the neutron collides with a nitrogen atom, a nitrogen-14 atom turns into a carbon-14 atom. Okay? Kind of the reverse process that we talked about earlier. Plants absorb carbon dioxide and incorporate carbon-14 through photosynthesis. Animals and, uh, I'm sorry, animals and people eat plants, take the carbon-14 in. Following death and burial, wood and bones lose carbon-14 as it decays into nitrogen-14 by beta decay. Not important, uh, but that's the, that's the, the carbon-nitrogen process. Parent isotope, daughter isotope. Okay. So, again, we're not going to question the results of the testing these labs come back with, but rather the assumptions underlying the interpretation of these results. That's what we question. Okay. So, some problems very quickly that arise when using carbon-14 testing methods. Forest fires put, in a, put out a huge amount of carbon into the atmosphere and simultaneously deplete the soil of carbon-14. Okay, so that's something that needs to be accounted for. Naturally occurring atomic activity within the earth, uh, and, and that gets released, and that will increase or even double the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere. So that needs to be accounted for. Unfortunately, for all of these things, we don't know how much to account for. We don't know how many forest fires have happened in, in 4.6 billion years. We don't know how much radioactive activity has taken place and injected stuff into the atmosphere. Uh, volcanic eruptions, they blow carbon into the atmosphere. Industrialization, this is more recent, this, this we can monitor. Industrializ industrializ Thank you. Industrialization, good grief, I'm getting tired here. Produces carbon that goes into the atmosphere. Solar flares affect how much carbon-14 are in the atmosphere. Carbon re reservoirs within the Earth. Changes in atmospheric pressure affect that. Variances in the Earth, Earth's magnetic field. 
And these are eight. There are others. All, all of these affect how this process works. And again, we're aware of these and other uh, situations that affect this process. They all have to be accounted for. But we can't account for them because we don't know how often they take place. How often they did take place in the past. In addition to that, all of the, the three other assumptions that we had to deal with with the radiometric dating also come into play with radiocarbon dating. Those three assumptions are still there as well. So, uh, carbon-14 dates from samples we do know the ages of are extremely unreliable. Coal and diamond samples were dated about 40 to 60,000 years old, but they were found in rock beds that were dated uh, between 40 and 318 million years old. Tested separately. How could that be? That's a problem. Now, although the numbers are off, the numbers they give us are, are, are way larger than we believe they should be, what they do demonstrate is that the coal beds all over the world were deposited at or around the same time. Which is interesting to a creationist because that gives a lot of scientific credence to, let's say, maybe a worldwide flood, for example. And again, I, I want to keep emphasizing, I don't need any, any scientific proof for me to understand that, that God sent a flood in Noah's days. Uh, but it is interesting to me when, when things kind of line up that way. I do appreciate that. Okay, now, uh, one last problem with carbon-14 is its half-life. It has a half-life of about 5,700 years. So, what that means uh, for our discussion here tonight is anything older than around 100,000 years old should have no detectable C14 remaining. Okay? But all over the world we find coal and diamond deposits, dinosaur bones, which are supposed to be millions of years old. Some of these are found in rock layers that are dated up to 500 million years old. And they have a, a substantial amount of carbon-14 remaining. If the earth was billions of years old, this simply could not be the case. Okay, so, when the evolutionist, when the humanist, when the, the professor at college says the earth is billions of years old, don't take it at face value. Don't take any of this at face value. Ask questions. Why do you believe that? Well, because of this. Well, are you aware of this, 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 and this? It's not reliable. It can be demonstrated. It will not give an accurate age. Now, you can continue to believe that. I mean, that's, that's your right as a human being. You can believe whatever you want. But don't tell me it's scientific and don't tell me you've proved it. Because that's a bald-faced lie. And again, the popular literature, it'll spew this all day long. But when you look into the, the technical journals and the peer-reviewed journals, people are questioning this a lot. Why can't we get an accurate age? They still believe that the earth is billions of years old. 
They just wonder why they can't show it. You're not the only one questioning it. Amen. The Bible is true. We were created. We were created in the recent past, according to the genealogies we find in Scripture. This is a young earth. We've been around for about 6,000 years. And it's wrapping up, folks. It's getting ready to close down. And we need to be ready when that happens. Amen. Not only do we need to be ready, but we need to be prepared to get as many people ready with us as humanly possible. As spiritually possible. Amen. We need to study to show ourselves approved. We need to be apt to teach. We need to be able to give a reasonable defense for the hope that's in us with meekness and fear. That's our calling, folks. That's our election. That's what we're called to do. Amen. With the help of God, we will do that. Amen. Let's all stand.